0: Here is singer-songwriter, broadcaster, audio-video artist, entertainment agent, and your host for the Dharmic Evolution. It's the master storyteller himself, James Kevin O'Connor.
1: And welcome back once again. Thank you for being here today at the Dharmic Evolution. Um, If you're digging this show, and I know you are, and you would like it to come right to your phone every Friday morning when we release it at 4.10 a.m., and we release it from Malta, even though we record it in uh, Nashville. Uh, isn't that cool? I just love this uh, worldwide appeal that we have. So go over to dharmakevolution.com. You can check out Spotify or or Stitcher Radio or Apple Podcasts, whatever you like. You can just uh, sign up right there, and it will come to your phone each and every week. Hey, today I got this wonderful gentleman who is—he uh, has such a unique business He teaches people how to do it on camera, in movies, uh, songs, performances on stage. You know, if it's on stage, a podium, front of a camera, he's hired to create it, develop it, enhance it, or fix it. For over 30 years, he's coached singers, actors, anchors, talk show hosts, politicians, doctors, lawyers, CEOs, and athletes. His clients include Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and Emmy winners, He has partnered with major film studios, production companies, TV stations, and national cable stations like CNN, Fox, The Weather Channel, to create productions that are unique, creative, and powerful. His full resume is extensive, including acting, writing, directing, and motivational speaking. You better strap up your seatbelts, cause we're taking a ride today on the Dharmic Evolution from the Music City with none other than Bill Cakmus. Bill, welcome to the Dharmic Evolution. I'm so happy to have you here today.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, and we're both uh, we're both Nashville people, which is so unusual for this show because we're, we're kind of all over the world usually, you know, with all different uh, walks of life. So it's it's so nice to be, um, you know, with with a brother in town. <laughs>
2: yeah. Hey, did the uh, tornado affect you at
1: all? No. You know, I was. It was remarkable that that day. I had two shows that I was doing, and I was kind of just in lockdown mode. And I got all of a sudden, I took a break in the afternoon and got all these text messages from my family in New Jersey, because I only moved here in August. And they hadn't heard from me, so everybody's thinking the worst. Then my fiancé's reaching out. I didn't hear from you, and I'm, like, getting sick with worry. (laughs) And so I kind of toured it um, just on Sunday and saw the devastation on the east side. Um, I was just shocked when I went down. I was near the uh, Nashville Rescue Mission, the women's uh, mission, and I couldn't believe the devastation. Just horrible, you know.
2: I know. It was horrible. And I was in Florida at the time and and got so many— uh emails and and texts and and it's the same as you asking if i was okay because and at the time i didn't know it had happened i was in florida i was i was teaching at a seminar in orlando so uh you know like you yeah uh you know i i heard two friends but but uh you know uh yeah it was uh devastating
1: thankfully we uh we escaped you know that was uh yeah. you know i heard the thunder clap i i literally told my brother i said i thought the house was literally going to fall on top of me. It just threw me out of bed practically, you know. And it just, it just swept past me. And then I heard about everything the next day. So, you never know. You got to count your lucky stars, you know. You, you got know, to count your just, blessings. Absolutely. Yeah. I was mm-hmm. in the
2: Northridge earthquake. I was four miles away from the epicenter and destroyed our home. So I understand the the that feeling of uh, of sudden. It, it's just it's this sort of miraculous. The crazy thing that happens in an instant, and suddenly uh, everyone's life changes. Yeah, so I get it. Yeah, been there, done that.
1: You have so many um, different things that you do. I was really, I was really kind of uh, taken aback by your your bio and your resume and all the things that you've done with so many people, like helping them in their careers. Um, so I, I just wanted to start with. The Host Whisperer, I love that. I saw that. I said, that is so awesome, man. <laughs> you know what? You
2: want to know where that came from? Uh, years ago, uh, there was a spinoff of American Idol called All-American Girl. It didn't last long, but they. I got a call. I got a call every six to nine months saying, we have a host problem. And this was one of those cases where Nigel Lithgow, who uh, executive produced American Idol for years, I don't know if you know who he is. He's the uh, English judge on So You Think You Can Dance. Okay. Uh, His name is Nigel Lipgow. Anyway, Nigel was uh, also producing. This was the first spinoff of American Idol called All American Girl. And I get a call from Nigel saying, we have a host problem. I said, what's your problem? He said, you're just going to have to come here and see it. So I And I lived in L.A. for uh, 15 years, but uh, at that point, I had moved away. So I flew back i get there and they redress the american idol stage for all american girl and it's a talent show basically just like um um oh gosh uh uh what's the uh, talent show now the, the the american show oh the voice um, well it's it's like one of these shows where there are three judges there is a host And in this case, all of the acts were young girls from the ages of 13 to 17. And it was any talent that they wanted to do. America's Got Talent. That's what I was
1: saying. It was just
2: like it was sort of the first version of America's Got Talent called All-American Girl. The only difference between America's Got Talent and All-American Girl, it's all girls from the ages of 13 to 17. So I, I get called. I come and I'm sitting with Nigel in the back of the uh, house, watching the show as they're taping the show, and the little girl, little 13-year-old girl, does her act, and after her act, the three judges uh, uh, do their thing with her, and then after that, the host comes out, and it's a Ryan Seacrest-like host, right? It wasn't Ryan, but... So this guy comes out, and he talks to this little 13-year-old girl, and as she walks by him to go sit down, as she's done, this host Stares at her butt in a oh. very lascivious way. Oh my! Now, right now, this is on national television, right? Yeah. And as, as it happens, and she walks by, my jaw drops, and I turn and I look at Nigel, and Nigel looks at me and says, "Fix that." Yeah. <laughs> so, because this is what much of what I do is I fix shows. Um, yeah. Whatever the problem is, I, I, I go in there and I fix it. Now, you will never see my name anywhere because production companies never want studios to know that there's a problem. Yeah. So they'll always sneak me in through the back or in some way I'll, I'll get there. And um, you, they'll hide my expense as the $800 seat toilet seat, the $400 uh, rug, the $200 screwdriver. Anyway, they, they'll hide my expense somehow. So I'm there, I'm watching this, uh, my jaw drops, uh, uh, he says, go and fix it. I walk up on stage, they stop tape, they cut audio, and I walk up to this guy, and I'm three feet away from him, and I'm looking right at him, and we had met just before the show, so I knew, who, he knows who I am and what I'm doing, and I looked at him, and I said, what are you thinking? And he said, what? I said, you stared at that little girl's butt as she walked by, and he looked at me and he said... What should I have stared at? And I said, "How about her face? Her father is sitting in the audience. There are a million people watching this show. Get your act together." Yeah. And so he gets better for a little while, and then he becomes an idiot again. So all all week long, I'm going up there to fix this guy. And wh- what they had done is they had hired a guy who was a stand up comic, and he was a his his c- comedy was very blue, uh, and he just assumed that that's what they iron him for to be that guy right yeah and so i had to train him not to be that guy on national television so at the end of the week uh i went up uh, um you know I, when i was done i i i went up and i said listen thank you so much for um uh the opportunity to work for you but it was an emergency uh this visit and i have other clients and, and i've got to go and uh he said to me, listen, thank you so much for helping. You did a great job. He said, I got to tell you, the network came in and they saw you and they came up to me and they said, who the hell is that guy? And he said, I didn't know what to tell them. I said, well, what did you t- tell them? And he said, Bill, I'm so sorry. It just came. I said, what did you tell them? He said, well, I said you were a host whisperer. <laughs> And I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> and he said, well, I just said that you were part of the host's gang, and you were there to help him and to calm him, and you were part of his entourage. And, and he called you a host whisperer. I said well okay I guess I can use that (laughs) so (laughs) since that time you know he's the one that first uh, named me the host whisperer so there you
1: go. Were you able to get through to this particular host I mean you know that first encounter aside after that uh i'm assuming you had some like really you know knee deep conversations about you know how he's how he's handling you know the people and how he's you know what he's doing on stage
2: yeah he 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 became better here's the thing there are some uh performers who are able to take your uh how you communicate to them able to take all of the uh, suggestions you give them and immediately just just fold it into their um, into the performance, and there are others that you know. I can teach a horse to act like a dog, but at the end of the day, it's a horse.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and there's,
2: so right. this guy was kind of that. You know, yeah. he he did what I told him because he you know his 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 reputation was at stake, and and uh, you know it was his career. So he did what I told him, and I got through to him on that level. But you know, there's some people that they are who they are. Yeah,
1: so, when there you go. when you go to a, a situation like that, when you're like they call you in for like a show and say, "Hey, we mm-hmm. got problems." Um, Did they do they get into like more complex things than just one person? Is it do you ever get called in because there's um, there's an there's an association problem with with the members of the the crew or the cast or whatever, where you have to kind of. You know, suss it out and and address people's you know on camera behaviors with one another. Any of that going uh, on? There, w-
2: uh, there are all kinds of situations. I've got thirty years of of these kinds of stories, but uh, yeah. uh, I've got two two stories. One was at a uh, news station uh, at a local market in the Midwest. And the news director called me and he said i'm ha- i have a mutiny on my hands everybody hates everybody and it's gotten out it's just gotten out of hand and they're uh, they're uh, sabotaging each other uh, uh, on camera and behind camera you know that um you know that that film where the guy looks at the they put something wrong in the prompter and he reads He he reads, um, uh, you know, Anchorman. The film is Anchorman, and they put, you know, bad words on the prompter, and he reads it because he hadn't seen it before. Well, they were doing all kinds of things like that. So I had to fly there, and I sat down with the news director first and and asked him specifically who was doing what. And so many people were involved in this this uh, this craziness that I said, all right, here's what we have to do. You're going to have to call everyone in on a weekend, and that means overtime, and I'm sorry about that, but everyone's going to have to be here, and I'll fix this thing. And so everyone got there Saturday morning, and I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to produce a show. And they went, all right, well, you know, that, that takes them a half an hour. And I said, no, 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 we're going to produce a show, but producers, you're going to be the anchors Anchors, you're going to be the directors. Directors, you're going to produce. I got everybody to do the other person's job. And what they didn't realize is how hard the other jobs were. And once they had, it took what would have taken them a half an hour, took them all day to create a show. And we finally got that show done. And then the second day I had them come back and do it again. And I changed the roles again. So by the end of the weekend, they were all singing Kumbaya because they all realized that, you know, they were all thinking that their job was the most difficult. And at the end of the weekend, they realized every job is difficult. Yeah. Right. So, so that's how I did that. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. When you go, when you go into a situation like that, there must be like a, a, like a warm up period before they like accept you. I can just see like pe- cause people because <laughs> people people are generally like you know egotistical and like hey don't come in here you stranger and tell me how to do my job you know is is there I, a typical I get, that all, I get
2: that all the time and, and yeah. here is here's here, here's a, there is no warm up period there, right. uh, because these things are happening and I'm I'm the last guy they call after everything else has failed. And before they throw everything out, they go, okay, you know, we're going to do this. And if this doesn't work, then it's done. And so uh, here in Nashville, there was a show called Primetime Country that was on uh, TNN when there was a TNN for years. And Dick Clark was producing the show. Dick Clark called me and said, Bill, I have a host problem again. And I said, what's your problem? And he said, women don't like him. And I said, well, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. I said, he, And he said, can you fix it? And I said, I don't know, Dick. I've got to come and see the show. So he flies me to Nashville. Uh, I wasn't living here at the time. And I come and see the show, and I sit down with Dick, and I said, I, I get it. The reason they don't like him is because, one, uh, he doesn't know how to host a show. He was famous in another arena. And many times they'll get a famous person to have a talk show. But if they haven't trained them how to how to." do a talk show it's a very set it's a skill set yeah you know, just because you're famous it's something else it doesn't mean you can you can uh, host a show so uh, there's a skill set learning how to read a prompter how to deal with guests the whole thing and he and he's a nice man he just didn't know and understand how to treat guests so dolly parton would uh, uh be introduced she'd come out and instead of going over to to greet dolly he would sit at his desk and he'd go Hey, honey, come on over. <laughs> you know, and you just don't do that with Dolly Parton or any woman, for that matter. Yeah, right. And and, and certainly any guest. So to so he had to learn the comportment of being a uh, uh, being a uh, host, a television show host, but also they were writing incorrectly for him they were writing jokes for him like he was david letterman and he's not david letterman yeah. so he's he he was more like a uh, a leno you know so there was a, a, he was a storyteller and so i had to talk to i had to uh, work with producers on how to write differently for him i had to work with the director and also with the people that were they were dressing him like he was a pimp so i had to change that but also i had to work with him so Dick said, "I will go and introduce you to this guy." And I said, "Great." So Dick uh, takes me to this guy's office and introduces me to this guy who is sitting behind his desk. And Dick Clark says, "All right, I'm just going to leave you two guys alone." And I walk, and Dick Clark walks out. I haven't said one word to this guy. This guy looks at me and said, "says Just to let you know, I'm not changing." And I said, "What do you mean you're not changing?" He and he pointed to himself and he said, "I like," and then he said. Joe Schmo. He said, I like Joe Schmo, and Joe Schmo isn't changing. I said, wow. I said, so I guess we're done. He said, I guess we are. I said, you know, you could have said that with Dick in the room. He said, you go tell him. I said, okay. So I turned around to walk out, and when I got to his door, his uh, office door, I turned around, and I said, just, just one more thing before I go. And he said, what? I said, when you say you like Joe Schmo, he said, yeah. I said, which Joe Schmo are you talking about? He said, the Joe Schmo's sitting in front of you. I said, yeah, I get that. I said, but you talk to, do you talk the same way to your wife that you do to Dick? He said, no. I said, do you talk the same way to Dick that you do to your kids? He said, no. I said, so which is the real Joe Schmo and which is the lie? And that flew all over him. He got crazy. He started, he, he went nuts. So as he's yelling at me, one of the things that he says in this little uh, barrage that he throws at me is, you change who you are, depending on who you're talking to, to survive in that situation. He actually said that to me. And so he finished his blow up and he kind of settled down. I said, are you done? He said, yeah. I said, so you change who you are, depending on who you're talking to, to survive and succeed. He said, that's right. I said, look, I don't want to make you somebody else. I'm just trying to find the best Joe Schmo possible for this show. But I said, you know what? You're right. We're done. And I turned around to walk out, and he went, Well, no, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then I coached that show for about six years. I, I came here one week out of every six uh, to work with the producers and with him and so on. So, yeah, I get that all the time. You wow, know, but you have to, in, in the moment, you have to find a way to motivate the person. Because, you know what, what everybody realizes is at the end of the day, I don't care. I don't sign their checks. I, if they succeed, if they, they don't succeed, look, it's no skin off of my nose, but I am there for them. I'm not there because you know I'm the show or I'm the production company. I have one job. If you win, if you succeed, my ex-wives eat. Right. And my ex-wives are very hungry women. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important to me that I make everybody I work with a success. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Bill, do you ever get the opportunity to these people who are, you know, you know, vetting out these problems on their shows, do they ever include you before the hire to say, let's let's, you know, put this through a process and let's have somebody who knows what they're doing, like help us vet this out and and you know, do they ever invite you to auditions and say, We want to just make sure because you're the guy who really is the appropriate eyes and ears to to figure this out or is it always just through process of the show and you, you don't get those opportunities?
2: Usually, in, in, usually, not always, in television and film, I'm always going in because uh, there was a problem and I have to fix it. Yeah. Uh, now, living here in Nashville, I get a lot of um, uh, labels and, and managers who come to me when they're just getting their talent And they're asking me to solve the problems before those problems hit the air or um, hit the stage. So I do, I do get that here with young talent. Um, uh, I just last year a label asked me to work with this young guy. He was great voice, great writer, young. And he had never really been in front of a lot of people before. And so they came to me and they said, you know, would you, um, w- would you polish him a little bit? And I said, yeah, sure. So I got a, he was going to go on a radio tour, Yeah. which is, uh, he goes to, you know, they send him to different radio stations promoting his music before they even cut, you know, before they put it out. So when they put it out, those, uh, those radio stations will uh, play the song. So. I set up a situation with a, a mock uh, uh, a mock interview where the the supposed uh, GM of the radio station is there, the news director is there, the the uh, you know there are people production people there, and I said, all right, what you're going to do is you're going to come in, meet them, you're going to play a couple of songs for them, and and then you'll go. Let's see how that goes. So this, this kid, uh, and again, a sweet kid, this kid comes in, sits down, picks up his guitar, he looks at this room, and, and the first thing he says is, two Polacks walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells a Polish joke. <laughs> and, you know, people are just sort of stupefied, and, and then he goes on and does his music, and, I, and again, great voice, uh, 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 good writer. And afterwards, I sat down with him and his management, and I said, look, if you want to upset everybody in the room let me give you some racist jokes that are up to date (laughs) nobody tells polish (laughs) jokes anymore (laughs) (laughs) and of course i was kidding but this this kid said to me hell my daddy loves that joke and i said yeah i get it but you know the only people he'd ever really played in front of was his family and his friends yeah so these kids spend years sitting on their bed in their bedroom learning how to play guitar and learning how to how to write and sing music but they haven't learned how to deal with uh socially with an audience um uh with with uh journalists uh you know with all of that so yeah i get a lot of those kids just coming up
1: you know it's it's kind of funny that he would like he would like test the waters with like stand-up comedy or sit-down comedy instead of you know uh like just sticking to uh, music you know
2: well, the thing is, is you know, and I work with, uh, you know, if it's on stage at a podium in front of a camera, I either I fix it or develop it or, or what have you. So I work with a lot of uh, uh, speakers who are just about to do their first speech, and someone told them begin with a joke. Yeah. Begin by making everybody laugh. People hear that a lot, and when they come to me, what I will tell them is, if you start with a joke you had better be a stand-up comic who knows and understands timing and knows and understands how to handle an audience because comedy is not easy. No. And starting off with a joke is a huge gamble at best Yeah, unless you're a stand-up comic and you, you know and understand audiences and know and understand jokes. So there's a difference between having a sense of humor and beginning with a joke. Yeah, And a lot of people are told when they first do any kind of a performance, hey, get them smiling, get them laughing, begin with a joke. And it's the worst thing you can do yeah
1: yeah just ask even some of the pros who do it for a living um, not every every joke is a guaranteed slam dunk either you know so you're really you're really walking on a tightrope with no net you know um, well I've,
2: I've worked with a lot of stand-up comedians over the years and you know you watch these guys go from from venue to venue they have a recorder with them and they test material yeah. out over and over again by the time that you see a, a Netflix special or an HBO special, They have done those jokes hundreds of times, yeah, and they have done that show many, many times. So everyone thinks that it's the first time they're doing it. Man, I've worked with the best impromptu speakers on the planet, the the best um, improvisationalists on the planet. They don't improvise; they don't impromptu. They've done it so many times that uh, they may you know dance around a joke, but they know the joke. Yeah. And that's the thing that people have to understand about humor is it's not easy. You know? yeah, it's I'm like, not saying don't do it, but you really need to know and understand it.
1: Yeah, it's much like playing an instrument. I mean, you do it over and over until you've got it like, down. Like you said, timing is as essential as you know, the material itself. Um, you, I wanted to, I'm wanted. i glad you touched on this because you mentioned about labels and about artists and, and musicians and so forth. Um, so I saw on you know, some of your work on a couple of your videos on the website. By the way, folks, go to uh, Bill's uh, website, which we're going to put all the links in the show notes so you can check out all of his socials and everything um, in the broadcast. But you um, are coaching and and tr- helping um, artists with their PR and also stage presence. Do you help with that, oh, like yes. communication with an audience? Can you go into that Absolutely. a little bit and tell us, like, how you how you approach that with artists specifically?
2: Well, many times I will watch uh, a showcase, or I'll watch a show, or I'm working with a. Uh, musical group right now that we go to a soundstage uh s-i-r here in Nashville, and i will watch them rehearse their show and take notes and afterwards uh i'll sit down with them and say all right what you said before you went into this first or went into this one song was i wrote this song because i was eating peanuts and i thought they were funny and i will say Although that's interesting, you should probably connect more with the audience instead of with yourself. So let's find something that has to do with this song that connects with your audience. It can also connect with you. But here's what happens a lot of times with performers in terms of stage presence. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. There's a difference between a songwriter and a star. A songwriter plays the song. A star plays the audience. Right. And so a lot of these songwriters who, if they're playing at the Bluebird Cafe, which is a very small venue, they can just they can do their song and just and it's about the song. But you're working in a venue of fifty thousand people or five thousand people or whatever it is, you have to find a way to have a presence that connects with everyone there. And a lot of that has to do with, with the things that you're saying to them, how you're the sinew that you have between your songs, how you put your songs together, how you put your set together to build that audience's anticipation for the next song <clears throat> and for how you're um, moving them, um, so the kinds of, of songs, the rhythm of the songs, how they build to a certain point, all of that is important, and then they need to know that that when they're talking to the audience, it's not about the performer the audience and across the board with everybody I work with you know I have a little saying which is it's not about you it's never about you every great storyteller knows that every story they tell is about one thing every story they tell is about the person they're talking to because we all have had a family story we've told a hundred times but you'll tell it differently to kids than you will to your parents' friends, than you will to your friends, than you will to a stranger, to a man, to a woman. Because it's not about the story. It's about getting that person to react. Yeah. And you're going to change how you tell that story, depending on who you're talking to, because it's about getting them <clears throat> to react. You know, I've worked with a lot of politicians over the years, and I hate doing it, and, and don't want to do it. And I keep getting pulled back into that arena. But <clears throat> you'll watch a politician go from venue to venue. And it's the, same, um, it's the same speech. But what happens is right before they go on stage, they'll look at their handler, and the politician will say, who am I talking to? And the handler will say, you're talking to a 20-year-old blue-collar worker. You're talking to a 43-year-old woman with two kids. You're talking to an 80-year-old truck driver. <clears throat> and every single time, as soon as they hear that, as they're walking out to that podium, they're thinking in their head, all right, I've got to take this phrase and I've got to turn it from a baby boomer phrase into a millennial phrase. I'm going to take that third paragraph and I'm going to put it up front. They will change the – it's the same message, but they know that if they – hit, not that every person in the audience is a 43-year-old woman with two kids, but if they hit her, they know they're going to get most of those people. And that's how uh, politicians work. That's how great comedians work. Uh, that's how great speakers work. It's about the viewer. It's about the fan. It's about the audience. It's not about you.
1: When you're, when you're um, counseling and coaching, um, just back to the musicians for a minute, um, do you find that doing, like, have you been in a situation where you had to consult with an entire band? Or is it usually just one you know, person or you know, one solo artist? Um, or is it a couple of people? And how complex is that for you? to be able to
2: yeah i just uh a couple of years ago i had uh d vincent williams who's written a lot of music for other performers and uh <clears throat> grammy winner but he's a writer for other performers he wanted to put together his own band so d had me come in and these time, although he knew these musicians and you know musicians in nashville are awesome yeah they can get together and it sounds like They've been playing forever together because you know most musicians in this city are are extremely talented and very versed. <clears throat> so he got these guys together and he knows them, but they'd never played together. So I had to watch them, and although they were great musicians, they still they had not really worked together before. And to get them to uh, look at each other in a certain fashion at certain times during the music, to be able to acknowledge when one person was doing a certain lick or a certain, um, uh, you know, a a certain riff and to make it look like they had been performing for years takes a little time. Uh, but these guys picked it up very quickly, but it still took watching the whole thing and getting them to acknowledge each other on stage, staging it in such a way that, uh, um, it looked like everyone could see each other even though they couldn't sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so it, it all takes a little staging to make it look like it's first time through and it's natural. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, I wanted to give you some props on your book. Your, your latest is, uh, loyalty, trust, and success. Can you give us, um, a little bit about the inspiration of that and the title and, um, you know, oh, what thanks. motivated you to work on that?
2: <clears throat> you know, uh, Like I said, I've been doing this for 30 years, and and what I have found over the years is a lot of people come out of uh, either school, or they just come into the business, and they may have a great understanding academically, or with uh, a musician, they may know and understand theory, Um, with uh, broadcast news folks, they may understand journalism, but they're not really taught the one thing that they need to do most, which is communicate to their viewer, to their fans, to their audience, and because uh, because of this, I'll never be out of a job. They're not taught that. So I have, over all of these years, have formulated uh, tools and, and techniques for people to, when they're on camera, when they're on stage, when they're on a podium, to Create a certain kind of a loyalty and trust with their audience, with their viewers, and through that uh, create a success. So this book is a very practical, actionable book where it's got exercises, tools, uh, techniques to to create a success much faster uh, in in any business really in communication.
1: Do you have a, Do you have a favorite like as far as you go into a lot of areas. We talked about music. We talked about actors. You know, you've know, you done um, a lot of broadcasting people, TV shows. Um, is there a favorite area that you like more so than anything else to work in? You know,
2: first of all, I, I do what I do because if I had to do one thing my entire life, I would go insane.
1: Yeah. So
2: I love the fact that I'm that guy that walks into a room full of crap and the first thing I go is, okay, there's a pony here somewhere. Right. All I have to do is find it, <laughs> fix it, and all this crap will just sort of disappear. So I love being able to go in all of these different you know, actors and anchors and talk show hosts and politicians and religious leaders and doctors and lawyers and athletes. But I think one of my favorites to work with, if I had to choose something that's, that's a really a lot of fun, are athletes. Oh. Athletes are fun because they've been coached their entire lives. And they'll do anything you know as long as they don't have to write it down because <laughs> yeah. they don't want to academically they don't want to all they want to do is say, they'll say coach just tell me what to do and i'll do it yeah and uh so i love these athletes because uh they're high performance they they want to win one of the first guys i worked with one of the first athletes his name was uh um um oh come on bill he's a um uh, I'll think of his name in a second. Uh, but he was a famous uh, heavyweight uh, champion. And uh, his name just went right out of my head. Boxing? Uh, anyway, he, I'm sorry. Boxing? Uh, Kenny Norton, sorry. Oh, Kenny okay, Norton. yeah. Yes, Kenny Norton. So Kenny had just done a film called Mandingo. Right. Right after, this, right after this film, uh, Kenny's management said, you know, Kenny, acting classes might not be a bad thing. So I start working with Kenny, and at the same time, he's getting ready to defend his title. And, Ke- and Kenny was this huge adonis of a man, sweet as can be, kill you in a second. That was Kenny. So one day, <clears throat> Kenny comes in for a session, and he looks like somebody's just taking a bat to him. You know, he just looks. And I said, Kenny, where you been? And Kenny said, I, I was just sparring. And I said, Kenny, I said, Kenny, what's the hardest thing about winning? And Kenny said, and I thought he was going to say, get my head beaten in every day, not seeing my kids for weeks at a time. And Kenny said, the hardest thing about winning, he said, once you win, you're not allowed to lose. And I like, oh. Now, in coming from Kenny, that was pretty heady, right? And I said, well, then Kenny, why do you do it? And then Kenny did his Kenny thing. He said, hey, baby, it's what I do. I win. It's what I do. <laughs> and I've learned over the years working with a lot of these gold medalists and, 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 and athletes and performers. A lot of these people did something stellar early on in their career, and they've spent the rest of their life chasing after it. on the other hand, it's who they are they win it's just who they are, yeah, and so to them there's no failure it's just uh I, I'm working with an n f l um, player right now uh a, a, a titan here in town and um he's he's doing speeches and uh, so I got to see them do um uh, practice last year and these practices are crazy these nfl practices are crazy and so afterwards um a couple days later i'm sitting with a guy and before we start our session i said i gotta i gotta ask you i said you gotta hate practice you gotta hate practice now he's been playing for 20 years and this guy is awesome at what he does and he said no man i love practice i said come on he said no i do i said why he said because it's the only time i get to fall on my butt and I said, Why is that important? He said, Because it's the only time you learn anything. He said, When I'm playing a game, I gotta stay in my lane, man. I can't try out things, I can't follow my butt, I got mouths to feed, right? So I, I I gotta stay in my lane. Now this lane's pretty big, but still. He said, But if all I ever do is stay in my lane, I got young guys biting at my heels, man. And they're gonna they're gonna pass me if I don't keep learning. So, uh Practice is the only time I can try stuff out, and if I fall, that's cool. You know, the coach may get aggravated with me, but I just learned something. And so he said that, and it's just—it's a fascinating thing that I've found from so many successful people that I work with—is they've all failed. They've all failed at things, but they don't look at failure as an indication of who they are as people. It doesn't yeah. define them you know it was uh it's that old thomas edison thing that you know he it i forget how many times it's like 900 times he tried to make a light bulb and it didn't work right and the first journalist that said to him uh mr edison how does it feel to fail 900 times and he looked at the reporter and he said look the light bulb was just an invention with 900 steps
0: yeah, right. <laughs> That's a good point. So,
2: right, exactly. Yeah. So, so there is there is no failure to people who are successful. Yeah, there are just learning experiences.
0: It's and awesome. I really
2: feel that way. I, I had a, a an interviewer asked me a couple months ago, "Tell us about your biggest failure," which really floored me. That question floored me, and I said, "You're going to hate my answer." And this interviewer said, "Why?" I said, "Because I've never failed." And this person said, you mean you succeeded at everything you've ever done? I said, oh, no. No, there are many things I've tried that didn't work out. But that doesn't mean I'm a failure. That just means I learned that I had to find a different way of doing it, or I learned that, you know what, I'm not really good at that thing. So I'm going to do this over here, right?
0: Yeah. And I
2: think it's part of success is knowing and understanding that, that um You know, I had a sensei years ago that said that uh, your, your, the goal is the, it's, it's the journey. You know, it's not that black belt. It's, it's just being a master is a journey. There's no destination to being a black belt. It's all about, you know, mastery is all about being on that road. So I'm sorry. You know, you asked me a question and I just go off on a
1: tangent. No, that's so. okay. Hey, how are you making out with the travel situation? Are you traveling a lot these days? And is it, has it, has it compounded your schedule and, and created problems with what's going on with, you know, I don't even want to say it, the sea virus. You know?
2: Yes. I had, yeah. um, I've had three trips canceled this month yeah uh that I had to yesterday I had calls from from three different and they're corporations who have told all of their uh all of their uh all of the companies that they've owned we've stopped outside vendors we've stopped travel and anything that's happening you're just gonna have to put it on hold if that trip wasn't um uh essential, you're not going on it yeah and so yeah i've I've had to in the last couple of days i've been on the phone cancelling. Uh, uh, air, air airplane reservations, uh, hotels, cars. Because I've had clients call and say, "Listen, we can't. We're going to have to put it off till later in the year." Yeah, so, yeah. It's been it's this thing. It's been devastating all the way across the country.
1: Yeah, I really I think the it's going to. Um, I'm hopefully that the, the uh, my hope is that we've we've advanced so much in uh, biotech and computing that we get a handle on this thing quicker than people can imagine. I know it takes time, but. Um, this country has been blessed with a lot of great minds. So, you know, hopefully we get past this really, really soon.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, you know, we've had SARS and the swine virus and the uh, bird virus. You know, we've had all of these things over the years. But but to your point, we. Can, I think we can do it quickly. Just everybody has to put down their differences and just... Agree on, look, let's just get this thing handled.
0: Yeah, yeah. And,
2: you know, and yeah. we're, it's, it's so difficult in this environment for everybody to come together, but hopefully <laughs> this, 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 this puts everybody on the same level, man. Yeah, <laughs> There's a common denominator here. Yeah. So hopefully that will, that will help us all come together.
1: Yeah. Listen, as we're winding down here, uh, Bill, I just want to uh, ask you to give a shout out to all of our listeners to how they can support you. I've been on your website, which is really amazing. Um, you've got so much great content on there. Um, so anything that you'd like to shout out to everybody and also best place for people to connect with you
2: uh, yeah, that, that. thank you so much for that. Uh, go to CACMIS.com. That's dot scom That's my website. And you can find just about anything on there. Uh, you, YouTube, I've got a lot of videos on there if you'd like. Certainly my book, which you can get at Amazon. Uh, I've written four books, and they're all on Amazon. So you can easily go there. And uh, listen, I, I will tell you the best thing is to have this opportunity to uh, speak with you. James, I really do appreciate it. Uh, A lot of people have said a lot of great things about you and your show, and I'm just i honored that you've asked me to be here, and and I want to thank you for that.
1: Thank you, my friend. And listen, I just want to wish uh, all of God's blessing on you, your career, and uh, I can't wait for the next book.
2: (laughs) You're awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. God bless.
1: The book, Loyalty, Trust, and Success. Also, Coffee with CACMUS? it's not what you say check them out on amazon those are the books by bill kagmus we talked a lot about great things today favorite groups to coach tv people weather seminars and workshops public speaking media training talent coach he's a host whisperer yes indeed a show doctor sometimes the entire show an acting coach Business communications. These are all the skills and talents of Bill Cacmus. Check out our show notes. You can follow everything Bill Cacmus in the show notes. Check out his website. And thank you for supporting him here on the Dharmic Evolution. If you guys have not yet gone over to the Dharmic Evolution Facebook community page, please go over there, post your content if you're an artist, a speaker, a thought leader, and watch the support that you will gather from around the world. You can also stop by DharmicEvolution.com. Check out the 261 shows of authors, speakers, thought leaders, singer songwriters, musicians from all countries and all walks of life. On that page, you can check out their photographs, their music, their videos, their bios. Everything interesting about indie music is on the Dharmic Evolution website. That's it for me today. It's a wrap. I'm your host for the Dharmic Evolution, James Kevin O'Connor, singer-songwriter, audio-video artist, master storyteller, and international talent agent. So until the next time when we meet again, I'll either see you on the socials or I'll see you from the stage.